Hello, welcome to the Theo Bros Podcast. I've got a great show for you. I've got Eric Dodson here talking about pastoral ministry and sermon preparation. I have Nathaniel Jolly talking about his work in Alaska and mission work in general. And then I have William Wolf chatting with me about, well, whatever the Holy Post guys put out recently um, regarding us culture warriors actually being fearful. So we'll discuss that. If you've enjoyed the Theo Bros podcast, I want to encourage you to go to iTunes, rate my podcast, give me a review. Um, that really encourages me and makes me want to keep going. This has been a lot of fun. Episode 13, we got the trifecta. Let's go. Eric Dodson, welcome to the Theo Bros podcast. Oh well, thank you, man. It's great to be on. I've been I've been tuning in and listening, so it's nice to be counted among the Theo Bros. Yes. Well, good. Thanks for listening, Eric. You yeah. are a pastor of Grace Community Baptist Church in Elgin, Texas. You're the graduate of Master Seminary. You are husband to Tara Dodson. You're a former Marine. Yes, um, is there anything else I should add to that? Well, I must correct you because even though it is the same railroad person that the town is named after, and even though it is properly pronounced in Illinois, we call it Elgin here in Texas because we're Texas. You're, you're with a strong G. <laughs> yes, the hard G for us. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I respect that, actually. It gives me goosebumps when I think about it. Yeah. I might... I, I feel like if I were to say Elgin, Illinois, um, that they might like tar and feather me. Yes, and they would say the same here. We'd, we'd cover you in pig stuff and feathers here for uh, <laughs> saying it Elgin. Uh, I'm, I, I'm, I'm glad to know that. I will remember that <laughs> next time. You will be a recurring guest, so there you go. I won't screw it up the, the following time. Uh, Eric, you are a, a homesteader too, aren't you? Uh, we are learning to homestead. We moved on to 11 acres back in August. And so we are learning that it's a much steeper learning curve than we thought. But we are, we are learning and uh, we are really learning the kind of proverbial wisdom of slow plotting process. And so it's been used by the Lord mightily to... Uh, to teach us patience and wisdom and diligence. So the slow plotting farmer, huh? That's, that's right. What you, that's what you become. That's great. That's right. Yes, sir. And I love that picture that, that Paul gives us because it's you're you're farming in hot weather, you know, in yes. warm in, in cold weather. You know, basically as pastors, we are working in all kinds of climates and environments and it it changes regularly. We go through different seasons, um, yep. and we face those seasons. And so, you just got to keep preaching the word. Yes, and in every season, your farm animals need to be fed, and the sheep of God need to be fed. So, yeah. we keep working. Well, that's neat. Well, Eric, I want to know how did the Lord lead you into pastoral ministry? Yeah. Um, so I was saved in high school uh, around fourteen, fifteen. I don't know exactly when. Um, I usually target around my baptism, which is uh, after I was saved um, in when I was 15. Um, and quickly, the Lord just 
gave me an appreciation for the men who had invested in me. I had a, a bivocational youth pastor and a pastor at our church uh, and another man who was a traveling evangelist at the time. Now he's um, settled in. He's actually the pastor of the church that I was saved in. Um, and those men just invested in me and I had an appreciation for them and uh, for what they had done for uh, my grandmother in particular and myself in leading us to the Lord and uh, really just wanted to be like them and didn't know a lot of what that meant and uh, didn't really give myself over to like deep discipleship right away. I just thought, you know, I'm saved. I can do three C's in a poem, so I'm good. Uh, and so the Lord took me through uh, about a two decade process of uh, humbling me and letting me know I wasn't ready yet <laughs> uh, and going through some training and um, lots of lots of faithful men just patiently investing in me. Um, and then for a while I thought, okay, maybe I'm more of a support role. Like I uh, actually worked at Grace to You and served at Grace Community Church in LA and thought, you know, I was, I was just fine kind of being in a support role. Um, and then about four years after I graduated seminary, um, was still there at Grace Church, Shepherds Conference, a lot of my friends who had gone on to become pastors uh, came back for Shepherds Conference and um, the Lord just really put a burden on my heart then to, to be a pastor. Um, and so my wife and I started praying about it. Uh, I had, there's a professor at Masters, Dr. Alex Montoya, who would always tell us, uh, don't forget the barrio is how he would say it. Like, don't, don't come here and forget that you're called to go serve somewhere else. Um, mm. So we started praying and um, within about six months of praying specifically for a pastorate. Uh, we had connected with uh, Grace Community Baptist, where I am now, and um, after about a four or five month candidating process with them, we moved out in December of 2018, um, and it has been an exciting whirlwind ever since. About a year in is when the pandemic stuff started, so it's been a fun pastorate. You know. How do the Marines fit into your story? Yeah, so I had really bad, um, I had bad theology of discernment uh, young, and uh, I was praying. I, I grew up in a inner city, uh, poor environment, and after high school, um, I had kind of looked around midway through what was supposed to be my first semester of college, and I wasn't going anywhere just like most of the folks from my neighborhood weren't going anywhere. Um, and I already knew I wanted to be in ministry, but I just didn't know how to get there. Uh, so I started praying and I won't regale you with the details, but through laying out some fleeces, we'll say, um, the Lord <laughs> convinced me, not really, but I convinced myself that the military was the way to get out of my neighborhood uh, mm -hmm. and to pay for college and get you know to where I wanted to go in ministry. And, that was part of the long, bumpy road of the Lord kind of humbling me and preparing me and uh, teaching me discernment, teaching me not to lay out fleeces to make decisions. And mm. uh, <laughs> so it was a learning process. But yeah, so I spent four years in the Marines um, after high school. It was two years of peacetime. And then September 11th happened right in the middle of my time in the Marine Corps. Wow. 
And so you were seeking to to figure out the Lord's will. You were you were, you were asking God to show me signs, right? And and yes. the Lord in His mercy and His grace, I mean, the Lord used that as a part of your story. He did, and uh, my wife will tell you with laughter and tears that Top Gun the movie played a part in that. So it's, <laughs> wow, it's, it's a long story. Wow, brother, we'll have yeah. to get into that another time. <laughs> that that's really quite something. Yeah, um, and, and I think we all have those those moment those times of, of bad theology that you know now we just we've we see through the working of the word have been able to just kind of shave out of our lives get out of our lives but they're yeah. still a part of our story and, That's right. and the lord the lord met us where we were at and and so that is yeah. That that's really encouraging to hear how the Lord led you to where you're at today, and and you are really invested in discipleship, and that's one of the things that that pleases me and, and encourages my heart. Um, and and for me as a pastor, I'd love to hear your insight. You know, how do you help or invest in in an associate who may have a long term goal of one day becoming a senior pastor? Yeah, I think, um, and I've really been learning this, um, thinking on it a lot, really the last year and a half or so. Um, you know, scripture tells us that Christ fits together the body, right? So each person has a different role. And we think about that illustration from the fact that, like, people have different roles, right? And it's true. But also, like, it's it's a beautiful, to me, depiction of Christ fits us together. So in every local congregation, the people have been brought there and fit together by Christ with different talents and abilities and things. And part of the shepherding role of the pastor and the elders is to help people discern how Christ has fit them in. What are their giftings? What are their uh, talents? How does their previous life experience play into their service to the church? And then really just encourage them and help them to flourish in that. There's a future for them out there. Um, I think the biggest thing is don't be defensive. I think a lot of guys get in trouble when they think, you know, he's coming for my spot. So I, they get defensive. Uh, you don't want to do that because that will lead to an overcritical spirit. So you want to kind of guard against that. But then also just help them flourish. Like mm. find them opportunities in your own congregation to preach or pick up a little slack so they can go do pulpit supply somewhere whatever is going to help them kind of get the experience, get things ready, be open and kind of sharing your process of how you think through counseling situations, how you think through uh, teaching to different contexts, how you think through the preaching and the sermon process, like just invest in them and see it as a, you know, investment in the kingdom without being defensive or territorial to like, Hey, you know, we can't look at investing in one another like the world looks at investing in the stock market where we're just looking for a return on our investment. We have to look on it as investing in the kingdom and letting the Lord determine where that, where that produces fruit and when. So I think that, that, that kind of mindset has really helped me. Uh, we do have an associate pastor. I think he's gifted and, uh, and probably will be a senior pastor someday. Um, and so I just, I just see it as kind of my mission with him is to just build him up, give him opportunities. Um, and, you know, hopefully when the Lord times it out, just lovingly send him on his way. 
I appreciate that. I, I think it's really important, like you said, to just acknowledge the sovereignty of God in placing that particular individual within your church body, that this isn't an accident, this isn't a mistake, that, that guards against the envy that you're talking about, or just the, you know, looking behind your back, is he, is he fighting for my position? Um, instead, you, you're working together side by side. In, in leading your um, your flock. Do you see in this relationship with your associate pastor just a, um, does he pick up slack in areas that maybe you struggle with and vice versa? Oh, definitely. He's um, He came from a, a project management world in business. And so he's got gifts at organization and um, and really delegation in his leadership style that I learned from. Like, I don't I don't feel like I do those things particularly well. Um, and so I'm learning from him and, and growing from him. He also like, he's seminary trained and uh, has like a, you know, academic pedigree that's very similar to mine. And so it's, it's not a very like senior junior position. Uh, we sharpen one another uh, quite a bit. So I'm, I'm just incredibly thankful for him and for the Lord bringing him to our church. It's actually the first time our church has had more than one pastoral staff. And so it's been a huge blessing to our congregation. What does mutual submission look like between you two? Um, are you kind of the, the, the tip of the spear where you make that final decision, but you are letting him in on every decision that you make? Or, you know, how does that look between you? Well, we are one or two of three elders. Um, hopefully soon we'll be adding some more elders um, kind of in the process now. Um, and so we really operate in the uh, plurality of elders model. We're um, sort of an elder-led congregationalism uh, model church. Um, and we, we make decisions as an elder board on unanimity. So each guy in there has one vote and, um, and stewards that well. So... Um, there's very few things that I'm the ultimate and final say on. In fact, every it just started when I came every Friday afternoon. I send those men my sermon, and they know they have kind of free reign to say, "Hey, something's off here. Like this, maybe this isn't said the right way, or did you really mean this, or whatever." So um, I tend to try to submit to that uh, kind of plurality paradigm as much as possible, and really reinforce it often. Now, each elder has different areas that they are kind of the primary focus of. Uh, so like our uh, executive pastor is the elder that gives the most direct focus to our outreach. And so we'll tend to defer to him more in those areas. Um, uh, elder kind of oversees hospitality and um, the Sunday school things. So he gets deferred to in those things. I have buildings and obviously the Sunday worship service since I'm the primary preacher. So like those kind of things we get direct oversight on, but um, we all, all the big decisions are made with a plurality and operating on unanimity. That's, that's a, a just a lovely picture of just all being in agreement, all serving one another and seeking to, to, yeah, seeking to lead your body um, towards the glory and the image of Christ. I have a question for you um, to follow up that. What does excellence in ministry, particularly pastoral ministry, look like? Yeah, faithfully loving the flock. I think 
Um, mm. You know, I, I've been listening to a guy you recently had on your podcast, Reagan Rose, a lot about kind of planning and getting things started. And so I have a, a planner that every day has a main goal. And my main goal is just faithfulness every day. So faithful work, faithfully loving the flock. Um, I want to press people on to Christ likeness. So, you know, uh, uh, Colossians 1, 28, 29, we, pre we proclaim Christ teaching and admonishing every man so that every man may be mature in Christ. Um, mm. That's kind of our goal, and that's the reason we labor and strive. That was a definite paraphrase, not a quote there, by the way. Uh, so we just labor and strive to build people up. And sometimes that is out front. You know, you're preaching to people, you're, you're teaching to them, and they're sitting listening. Sometimes that is alongside, like just coming alongside somebody, uh, weeping with those who weep, rejoicing with those who rejoice. And sometimes that's behind them, giving them a little nudge, like giving them the counsel that they need or the correction that they need to say, hey, like you need to go in this direction. Uh, and I think what makes a pastor or elder unique is being gifted by God, the discernment to know when they need to lead from the front, when they need to walk beside somebody and when they need to be behind, giving them a bit of a shove. So faithful, faithfully loving the flock. What yep. a precious, precious understanding of what excellence in pastoral ministry looks like. Thank you, Eric. Let's talk a little bit about sermon prep. Now, when I get on Twitter and I see uh, your feed, often I'll see pictures of, of your Bible laid out with uh, maybe some Greek on the screen of your computer. Um, you, have a, you definitely have a process that you go through every single week to ensure that you are rightly handling the truth. Um, can you walk us through that just a little bit, just so that, you know, that I can sharpen my skills and, and grow in my own sermon prep and my teaching preparation? Absolutely. So first I'll give the disclaimer that everything I have, everything I do, I learned from a lot of men, but predominantly uh, Matt Waymeyer, who's now at Expositor Seminary and Dr. Brian Murphy, who's at Master Seminary. Those men have invested a lot in teaching me this, so none of this is my original content. Um, but I start with the original text, um, whether Hebrew or Greek, with a translation. Um, if I'm in a didactic text, like a, a epistle, um, then I'll diagram it uh, in the original just to get the flow of the text. And that usually will set my preaching outline. I feel like if you have it diagrammed, you know the the flow of the author's argument and it should be the argument that you make when preaching. Um, from then I'll try to identify some key terms to look up, um, do some lexical study in some Bible dictionaries and theological dictionaries. Uh, after that, I will uh, typically do commentary study and I learned from H.B. Charles to start lighter and go heavier. So I'll, I'll usually have a series of commentaries. Um, right now I'm preaching through Mark and I've been there a while. So I've got a collection. I think I have 13 or 14 on Mark. And I start with the most devotional light commentaries like um, Warren Wearsby, J. Vernon McGee, uh, mm. and then move to the more exegetical ones last. Um, I also learned from H.B. Charles podcast to keep the person that you're most likely to agree with to the very end because you don't want to just lazily take their work. It, then you're using it more like a, 
checking your own work than uh, getting the answer easiest. Uh, so for me, because of all the time he's invested in me, that's MacArthur. So he's kind of the last um, one I'll read generally when I'm doing commentary study. Uh, depending on the week and how many interruptions in the week, uh, the next step I will usually do a theological study. So if a, a particular text I think conveys a certain doctrine above uh, anything else, I'll pull four or five uh, um, systematic theologies off the shelf and look up mm. that doctrine and kind of study that to see. Uh, and then I will manuscript. So I, I usually manuscript the sermon um, and then I'll write preaching notes from my manuscript. So I go into the pulpit with handwritten, uh, somewhere between a detailed outline and a manuscript. It's not full manuscript, but um, it's also not like just bullet points. So, and then prayer is all throughout that. So a lot of the prayer is, Lord, help me, because <laughs> the text will be working me over, or I'm just mm. thick in the head sometimes, and so I don't get things right away. So a lot of, Lord, help me understand this um, really throughout. But then I try to make sure each step I'm taking some time to pray over understanding of that word or understanding of that theological concept or or wisdom to understand if I've read opposing views in commentaries, Lord, help me understand which is the right view here. Um, so that prayer is all throughout the process. So as you faithfully love your flock, you know, you want to spend as much time as you can with them, but how do you make sure that you guard your time so that you can properly prepare your sermons each week? Uh, my wife helps tremendously with that. She has, um, she is way more than I deserve. She's faithfully, uh, lovingly a helpmate. So she helps me uh, both keep a schedule and guard a schedule. Um, we uh, get up pretty early, so that helps because usually people aren't calling you for counseling questions between like five and eight in the morning. They usually wait until you know, they're up and about or think it's unless there's something super yeah. bad. <laughs> yeah, if somebody interrupts in that time, you know something's really bad. Um, yes. But yeah, so usually just try to work the schedule around that. Um, I also don't, I think, honestly, I think uh, a lot of guys will hold to an American 40-hour work week kind of standard, and I just don't have that. I don't, I don't think that's a biblical standard to begin with, not that we have to be workaholics for sure, but we also don't have to hardcore limit ourselves to 40 hours. Um, so, you know, you just make time. And the people of God are worth it. Like the people of God are worth way more than anything I would do with leisure. Um, mm. And so I just, I really enjoy it. Um, we tend to fit in fellowship in different ways, which also helps me guard my counseling kind of calendar. Because uh, if people can talk to me, we have smoke meat Mondays at our house, which if you're ever in this area, you're welcome to come. Uh, and usually we'll have, you know, 30 to 40 people from the church at our house on Monday nights eating whatever's off my smoker. Um, that really helps me to guard my counseling calendar because if people can come up at a fellowship event, ask me a question, ask me to pray for something they're dealing with, they don't have to interrupt during the week or they don't have to schedule a time with me because they've just been in my house, um, you know, eating some brisket and they can ask me questions. So that actually really helps. 
uh, with the study calendar by having other times that I'm just available to people. Let's be honest. Smoked meat always helps. Oh, always, always. Yeah. Whether it's brisket or ribs. I mean, just, yeah, that, that always helps sermon preparation. That's right, buddy. And these are lean times. Even if it's chicken legs, it's still better on the smoker. (laughs) That's right. Brisket's got to be like, what, like a thousand dollars a pound now. Oh, it's, 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 (laughs) Just under $4 a pound here in Texas. That's amazing. Yeah. Oh, well, you have blessed my socks off today, Eric. Uh, thank you so much for the time that you've spent with me and you've invested in my own life. Um, I've learned just so much in our short little conversation here. I have one last oh. question that I want to leave our our uh, our audience with. If there's anyone out there who aspire to be pastors, what would be that advice that you'd leave them with? I would say pray. And if you're already married, um, pray with your spouse for a absolute conviction that this is what God's calling you to. Because if you pray and pray for that, and the Lord will answer it, um, that'll carry you through the lean times. Because no matter what, there's going to be down seasons. There's going to be difficult times. But if you have an unwavering conviction that this is what the Lord's called you to, that you have prayed for and the Lord has given you, it'll carry you through a lot of times. Um, so I think the probably the worst thing you could go uh, into pastorate thinking is, hey, we'll see if this works out. Like, no, you need to know <laughs> it's this or nothing. Um, and like John Knox prayed, you know, give me Scotland or give me death. Like you need to pray like in that way, Lord, give me a conviction that I know it's this or nothing. Uh, because on those Monday mornings when your dog tired and I get, I think the, the statistic, I don't know if it's real or made up, but like most pastors quit on a Monday. If you, if you have a firm conviction, you'll make it through Mondays. So um, pray. That would be my thing. Pray for, pray for an unwavering conviction Uh, for you and for your wife, that that's what the Lord's called you to. No plan Bs, right? That's right. Amen. (laughs) No no backup plans. Amen. The plow. Amen. Well, let me read. I'm about to go go put my hand back on the plow right now. (laughs) (laughs) I've got a conference coming up this July, by the way, Hand of the Plow Conference. Nice. We might fly you in. Um, <laughs> Colossians one twenty eight. I'm just going to read that real quick. Amen. Him we, him we proclaim everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all His energy, that He powerfully works within me, laboring, Amen. exhaustion. Boy, we should feel tired by Sunday afternoon, shouldn't we? Amen. <laughs> but that's what we do. Thank you, Eric, so much for your time. I love you, brother. I appreciate you so much. Yeah, thank you. Can I pray real quick before we wrap up? You bet. Lord, thank you so much for this time and for Justin and his ministry. And I pray that uh, anything said here would be helpful uh, to folks considering ministry or seeking to grow in ministry and that uh, you would continue to bless this podcast uh, to be a blessing to those who listen to it. For your honor and for your glory, we pray. Amen. Nathaniel Jolly.
is with me. Nathaniel planted Homer Reformed Baptist Church in 2020 after moving to Alaska from North Carolina. He's pastored and been in church leadership since 2006 and served as a missionary overseas in South Africa. Nathaniel is also the host of Truth Be Known podcast. Go follow that podcast. That's that's with Ekiet. Ekiet? Ekiet? How do you pronounce his name? I always mess yeah, it up. Yeah, you got it. Eki. Yeah, Eki Tepsaporanchai. Okay, great job. I'm not going to say it. Um, which is an apologetics podcast dealing with the current theological issues within the Christian church today. Nathaniel is also the author of All You Need, God's Word. Nathaniel and his wife, Jen Jolly, are serving in the last frontier state of Alaska at the tip of the Kenai Peninsula in a small town called Homer. Welcome, Nathaniel Jolly. You are my first recurring guest. That's awesome. Well, thanks for having me back on, brother. I, I was worried after the first one I'd never hear from you again. Never. No, that you're going to be on probably like a hundred times. So you just be ready. It's going to be you just you're going to be just so sick of this whole process by the time you're dead. Um, you're going to wish this never happened. Um, you wrote today on Facebook, by the way, if church is not essential to you, then your Christianity isn't much of a priority. So does that mean you're not shutting down your church for monkeypox? Yeah, absolutely not. You're keeping it open. Yeah, it's going to stay open, and uh, I'll just preach from a distance with my monkeypox <laughs> if I have to. <laughs> yeah, you just have this really... You While you're preaching, you'll be hungry for, like, bananas and stuff, and that's really what it's all about. Um, all right, some serious stuff here. We want to. I want. I brought you on to talk about mission work. Um, that's a that is dear to me, and you being a missionary, you being a cross-cultural church planter, um, I really wanted to get your perspective, a biblical one. Um, can anyone become a missionary? Is is cross-cultural church planting just for those who who feel called to it, or Nathaniel? Is there more to it? Yeah, that's a good question, Justin. I think basically you need to have um, some sort of uh, metaphysical encounter. Uh, no, I'm totally just kidding. Um, to I'm totally joking. Yeah, it, you know, I think it's kind of a loaded question. The answer is yes and no. Can anyone become a missionary? Yes. Um, what? What? But there's some prohibitions. I, I think um, people need to be. We need to look at. Um, I I think biblical view of missionaries and mission work would be people who are qualified as elders in the church. And if uh, that isn't happening, then I don't think that person should be sent out as a missionary. Yes, elder qualification. Do they need training too? Oh yeah, absolutely. It, you know, I mean, one of the one of the primary distinctions of an elder uh, that's outside just the character, qualifications is being able to teach. Well, you need training for that, right? And so, um, and, and I would go even beyond that, um, just because you are qualified biblically as an elder, just because you could teach, I would say even beyond that, you need to already be plugged in to a local church and that local church acknowledging and sending you out as a missionary as well. Yes, I 100% agree with everything that you said, brother, and I appreciate your your perspective on that, because um, 
what I've seen and what I've even run into through different organizations is that <laughs> is the thought that, well, listen, these guys are in third world countries. You know, how much do they need seminary uh, degreed missionaries who are, you know, who who are elder qualified? Why do they need that sort of qualification if they're just going to go plant a church in the middle of the jungle of Papua New Guinea? Yeah, I, you know, it's hard for me not to think um, that a person asking that question should never be involved in sending missionaries, um, because what a terrible perspective. But I think even more so, to be honest, uh, when you're going to groups of people who, uh, in, 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 in all honesty, you may need to be doing quite a lot more groundwork in, te in terms of how they understand biblical concepts. And uh, I, I think you need to be extraordinarily equipped for those circumstances, because it's not just preaching scripture uh, that you're having to deal with. You're having to um, deal with how they view certain imagery in the scripture, and you need to be you know, able to pick up on cultural distinctives and understand how they affect um, you know, what people understand from scripture and be able to help them get to a right understanding. So yeah, you need to be trained. You need to be well-trained. Um, and the church needs to send missionaries, not third-party mission organizations, in my opinion. Amen. Well, let's talk about your church plant. Um, tell me about your journey as missionaries, you and Jen. How did God lead you to, to Alaska? Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> Okay, the 45-second story is that we were actually on our way to Africa, not Alaska. Hmm. So I, I sort of joke and tell people we got the two A's at the end correct, and we just missed everything <laughs> in the middle. Um, but uh, yeah, you know, we, we were making looking at making the move to Africa, and then COVID hit. The country we were going to never opened up, and um, you know we had to move. We were that far along in the process, and so just you know through God's hand, uh, God's providence, we ended up planting in Alaska instead, and so that's sort of our story. So we've been here now since uh, September of 2020. Okay, now why did you want to go overseas, anyways? You know why? Why did you not stay at home where you were? Yeah, I have, uh, yeah, you know, I've been going to the African continent for a long time. I really have a heart for Africa, and that's, you know, something that I think uh, God's given me. And, um, you know, and my wife grew up in, uh, in, in Guatemala, so she was born and raised, lived there until she moved mm. to the States for university. Um, so we're both familiar with uh, kind of the outside of the American context. And um, yeah, and so that's something that it looked like the door was open. We were going to do that. And then, bam, uh, a pandemic hit, which uh, no one planned for. And uh, our world got kind of flipped around along with a lot of other folks. And yet we see God's grace and uh, the beauty and how he works in this providence and all of that. Um, I have discovered that I am just I was born to live in Alaska. I, I love it here. I never dreamed about moving to Alaska, but, uh, it's, it, it's nice. And God's been very gracious in that. It's sweet. You know, you, your, you know, your home is, is America and your home is, you know, at least for me, like my home was Illinois and I just, 
it's weird. I grew to love the cornfields and, and that was easy for me. I just, you know, when I think of home, I think of a small town and all of that. And, and so it was, it was hard initially for me to, to leave home and go make a new home. But I just remember so vividly how God woke me up every morning and there were things about my community, you know, in the Kuman community that just became home for me and and how God began to fit me for that particular place. And that's what it sounds like God did for you as well, that God is is fitting you for Alaska. And now, you know, by his mercy and his grace, you've been faithful to go and God has been faithful to to help you to stay. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, and, you know, we, we will, as the church gets established here, in, in all likelihood, we will uh, look for, you know, uh, doing partnering with other churches in Africa and things like that. But this is our home, and this is where we're planted now. Beautiful. What are some ministry challenges that are unique to the people that you serve in Alaska? Oh, goodness. Um, Alaska is a unique state, and um, I think what most people don't realize is that although although it is America, um, it, it's only sort of. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. it, you know, we're connected to Canada. We're the furthest north of the U.S. you can get. And um, Alaska is still very much a state where people come uh, who want to be left alone. And, and so in our area, we really sort of are evangelizing and ministering kind of two primary groups. And I would say you have the, the in our area, the one group that's very, um, v- very liberal in their view of how the world works and things like that. And so that presents uh, certain unique challenges. And then you have the folks who are sort of just like your very stereotypical um, Alaskans. They pick themselves up by their bootstraps. They live off the grid, a lot of them. Uh, you know, their they're, life is tough here, and they're getting it done. And so that presents some unique challenges. Uh, and, uh, and then, of course, our own community in which we moved has, has some unique challenges in terms of the peninsula where we live on. It's known uh, for some quirkiness, and, and so those are some unique things that we have to deal with. But you know, basically, life is hard here. Um, it, it, l- the cost of living is tough. We don't get Amazon Prime two-day shipping <laughs> like everybody else in, in the U.S. Right. Um, lots of people, yeah, our local grocery store has uh, water taps outside because that many people live off the grid. And so they come into town, they fill up their water jugs outside the grocery store and then take it back home. Um, so, yeah, so there's some unique challenges. And then I live in a fishing community. And so that that makes it a little bit different as well. So uh, during the summer months, a, a big portion of the population is out on boats, making their their earnings for the year in just a few months. Wow! And so you've got your you know you're in all kinds of different worlds, um, and and so how do you as a missionary, as a pastor, reach into all those different you know cultures, those those subgroups? It, is there anything unique that you do, or is it is it simply, I'm going to preach the Word and trust the Holy Spirit? I'm sure there's a little bit of both going on there. Yeah, you know, I don't think there's anything unique. You, you look at the Apostle Paul's ministry, and he basically did the same thing everywhere. 
he preached the gospel. He looked for opportunities to preach the gospel. Um, you know, sometimes it was in, uh, you look at the Areopagus and he's uh, speaking to them from kind of their own intellectual vantage point in the you know, he uses a statue to the unknown God to get to the gospel. And so there's some of those things where I just think are, are issues of wisdom, taking the opportunities we have. But no matter where he went, no matter what people group he went to, he preached the gospel, right, to whoever would listen. And so I think that's my basic um, method of doing things. And so what does it look like if we're contextualizing in that way? Well, when there are festivals here, um, and this is our first year we've been able to really do any of these things, then we'll go to those festivals. We've got a few coming up, and we'll hand out tracts, and we'll present the gospel to people and uh, give people a clear understanding of the depravity of man, the need for redemption, and the Savior who redeems, and we'll call them to repentance. Uh, and as we learn of those things in the community, we'll, we'll do that. Uh, and then our community has some unique ways to do that. Um, it just, well, it, it's interesting. So I'll, I'll give you one 30 second way. Um, th there's a, a short season in the year where King salmon come into a local area that makes it very easy to catch. Now that's important because here where we live, people quite literally live on uh, the game. So salmon is not just a recreational sport here. It is how you fill your freezer to survive on for the winter. Mm -hmm. um, and so during those few weeks, I'll go early in the mornings or whenever the tide's coming um, in. And there'll be, you know, 50, 60 plus people around at some stages, 20, 30 people. And those are opportunities not just to get our food for the winter, uh, but also to meet people, invite them to church, talk about the gospel. Um, and there's some camaraderie there cause you're, you know, a bunch of fishermen right around a, a fishing hole trying to, trying to catch food. And so those are some unique ways that we do that. But the method is basically the same. We look for opportunities to preach the gospel and, and Lord willing, we don't miss those opportunities and we take advantage of them. You go where they are, you go where they're at. I love that. Um, do you see any animism, you know, as far as, you know, attempting to manipulate spirits or manipulate ancestral uh, family members who have died in the past. Do you see folk animism at all in your context? Yeah, we we do have it a lot in Alaska. Uh, you think about the native population. Um, so it is a huge uh, it has a huge existence here. In our area, there definitely is some of that. I haven't personally come across it as much, uh, but it is certainly around. If you're, it's not always easy to get into those communities uh, until you've been here for some time and you've made, you know, God's given you the right connections to get in, but it is around. And besides that, we also have quite a big uh, charismatic influence in Alaska because it mixes really well yes. with that sort of thing. Yes, I'm, I'm sure it does. And a lot of that animism, even though you are, you're way out in the boonies, you are in America. And so a lot of that stuff probably goes underground a little bit more. And then, like you said, it probably disguises itself with, you know, word of faith, prosperity gospel, or just, you know, charismaticism in general. That's, that's, it's very interesting. Yeah, I you know when you get into the villages, it, it's just it's their cult. It's it's often part of their culture, and it's pretty open. Um, so you could come across it 
probably easier here than you could a lot of other places in the U.S., I, I would imagine. Yeah. How do you, you know, thinking about charismaticism and just the damage that it does to a person's walk with the Lord, their understanding of Scripture, um, their understanding of the Holy Spirit, you know, how have you as a pastor and even maybe in outreaches, uh, how have you reached into those types of false doctrine, false teachings, and sought to um, sought to bring truth to it? Yeah, um, well, one way we did that very recently is I did, uh, it was a, an eight or ten week class on the person work of the Holy Spirit, so pneumatology, and invited a bunch of guys from the community uh, to do mm. that. And so we had, you know, a handful of guys from some of the more charismatic places uh, around actually attend that. For, for those eight to 10 weeks. Uh, and so that was one way. And I, and I think I, I would probably say my view, having actually come out of the charismatic church myself about a decade ago, would be um, it, to combat that stuff. We, we just need to bring biblical teaching into the areas where it's most manipulated in the charismatic church. And so mm -hmm. if we want to help correct the understanding of who the Holy Spirit is, then Let's teach pneumatology. Let's teach on the person work of the Holy Spirit so people aren't left guessing. Uh, they're confronted with, you know, what the Scripture says about the Holy Spirit. So that that's one way we've done that. Another way is, well, Justin Peters is actually going to be coming down and doing a seminar uh, a couple days. And so things like that are, are always good ways, too. And we've invited everyone in the community to to come to that as well. Fantastic. When is that? Uh, he's, he'll be here in our area, June, uh, I think the 20th or so somewhere around there, but it, it's on my Facebook and stuff like that. So if anyone was in our area that was listening, they could go to my Facebook and find that information. Thank you, Nathaniel. And, and my last question for you, you know, how can people support your ministry in Homer, Alaska? Yeah, I, I appreciate that question, brother. Um, it, to be honest, it's uh, because of my pride. It's probably the <laughs> hardest part of being a missionary. Yes, <laughs> right. Yeah. I, I I know I know guys like to come across as being all humble, but I, I think and, and and most probably are more so than me. Um, but it it really is a humbling thing to be a missionary that re that depends on the support and prayer of of others. It's been really good for us. Um, yeah, so I, I think a couple ways people could do that. Um, a lot of folks who support our work here in our church plant do it through Patreon. And so they could go to patreon.com backslash Jolly Missionaries, all one okay. word. Um, or they could go to our church website, which is homerrbc.org. Uh, and there's a drop-down menu, and people could pick pastoral support if they wanted to do it that way. And then I, I would say um, that's super important because we really couldn't do the work here without uh, being supported at this stage. But in addition to that, and and really and truly even more importantly, is if, if we could get people who um, maybe they could only support us five bucks a month or something, but if they would dedicate themselves to pray for us on a regular basis, that that would be incredible. Um pray that God would soften the hearts uh, of the people in our community. We live in a community community that is very antagonistic For you against are all. the church, more so than I've ever been in. And so praying that God would give us wisdom uh, in, in ministering to those folks and that God would graciously soften their hearts and that he would be kind to us and that we would see 
uh, some come to, to faith through our work here. I just want to read from Philippians chapter 1, verse 3, Nathaniel. I thank my God in all remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. It's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. Partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Those who, who seek to support you, that's the, that's the joy of being a missionary and, and serving in a, in a, a context like, like you are serving in Alaska. Is you get to bring other people into it. And as we support you, we get to be a partaker in that ministry, even though we can't be the physical hands and feet that you are, Nathaniel. Um, we can become a part of that, of, of helping you, of aiding you in every way that we can to ensure that that you're running on full strength um, in Alaska, in Homer, Alaska, and, and you have everything you need to be able to do what you can do. And so it, um, I pray that, that my listeners will, will listen to this and they will become a part of your ministry. Um, do you have any newsletters or anything like that, Nathaniel, that, that people can get connected to? Yeah, absolutely. We send out a newsletter once a month, generally speaking. Um, and if guys would are interested in signing up for that, they can just um, private message me on Facebook or on Twitter. Uh, let me know, hey, we'd love to sign up for your newsletter and, and give me an email address and, and we'll get them added and, and they'll see that. And then uh, just check your spam box, you know, the first of the month or whatever. All right. Well, thank you, my dear friend. Thanks for spending some time with me and, and sharing your, your life with us. Um, you've certainly encouraged me this afternoon. Thank you, brother. I appreciate you having me on. God bless. I'm with William Wolfe. He served as, as both a Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense at the Pentagon and a Director of Legislative Affairs at the Department of State. You can find him on Twitter at William underscore E underscore Wolf with an E. Or you can search for him on Google and you can read a myriad of articles from him. I think you got to get this man on the conference circuit. How do you feel about that, William? <laughs> well, I don't know if I'm ready for that, Justin, but I, well, you know, I certainly have a lot of help people think through important things. So there's that. <laughs> there is that. Hey, are you going to start your own podcast? You know, I want to. I was hoping to get a guy to co-host a podcast with me. I was thinking of calling it something along the lines of like Baptist thought crimes or something like that. But I was not <laughs> able to secure a co-host that I was aiming for. And then, you know, I'm just going to publicly shame him here right now. It's Ryan Fullerton. He's a wonderful brother, wonderful Baptist SBC pastor. I had a class with him, Moral Theory, and I thought his insights were so excellent. Um, I really wanted to get his voice out there more than mine, but he's been busy and I've had a, I've had a, a fuller semester than anticipated. I'd like to address how Christians um, think through the media. That, that's one thing I think through a, a lot. William, there was a video clip tweeted out by Sky Jathani, who's a co-host of Holy Post Podcast, along with the VeggieTales guy, Phil Vischer, and it created quite a stir. Uh, there was one guy that I really wanted to hear from as soon as I heard it, and it was you, William Wolf. Um, can I play it for you, and then I'd love to get a response. Yeah, please do. 
as I read all these articles by Wood and Wren and Dreher, you, the thing you walk away with that I felt almost overwhelmed with was how truly frightened these guys are. They are genuinely terrified at what's happening in the culture and what they think is going to happen to Christians. And that led me to, I think, a bit of clarity about why they're so upset with Tim Keller and David French. And it's not because David French or Tim Keller are being winsome or kind. They're upset with Tim Keller and David French because French and Keller aren't afraid. That's the issue. They're upset that there are Christian leaders out there who are not as frightened as they are, that aren't as terrified as they are. And that's what comes out clearly in Rod Dreher's piece. It's, he says over and over and over again, yeah, 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 David French is correct that we're supposed to love our enemies and we're supposed to you know, pray for them and be good to them and all that. But he doesn't understand how truly evil these people are and they're out to get us. David's not afraid enough. And what it reminded me of is that story of, of uh, the disciples in the boat during the storm. And they're, it says they were frightened. They, were, they thought they were going to die. And they are angry at Jesus because he's sleeping in the back of the boat. And they say to him, don't you care that we're going to die? And that's kind of what Rod Dreher and these other guys are doing is they're looking at Tim Keller, David French, and other Christian leaders who are sleeping in the back of the boat going, don't you guys care? Why aren't you angry? Why aren't you fighting? Why aren't you against these people? And if you recall in the story, Jesus stands up and he rebukes his disciples for their lack of faith. You know, don't you know who's in your boat? Don't you know that the God who is all-powerful is here with you? Why are you so afraid? And that's what drives me up the wall with these culture-warring Christian conservatives who are driven by fear and are terrified, is they're displaying their utter lack of faith. Whereas I want to believe a Tim Keller or a David French understands that, yeah, there are some really bad storms happening right now, and some bad stuff may be coming down the pike, but Christ is in our boat. What do we have to be afraid of? Okay, that's that's the clip, William. Yeah. Because um, I read all oh, these articles. Oh, let me stop. I would and ran and drink. Stop. Okay, that's the clip, William. You um, don't want to hear it again? <laughs> yeah, I would rather not. This is, uh, there's a myriad of things that I hear and that are wrong with this. Sure. Uh, but I want to hear your perspective. Is he right? Are, are we afraid? And are, are we lacking faith even though Christ is in our boat? Right. I mean, first of all, there's, there's so many things um, off with his assessment here. And look, I don't expect to change Sky Jathani's opinion if he listens to this. I don't expect to change Phil Vischer's opinion, right? But I do hope to help other people better understand what's happening and to better sort through what they're encountering when they hear criticisms like that. So first of all, what is that criticism? That criticism, that critique of the articles by James Wood and Aaron Wren, that is a, a critique of pure psychological projection. Sky does not engage with any of the material or the substance of the arguments that Wren has proposed. And primarily with Wren, we're referring to his taxonomy of which world we live in. You know, do we live in positive, neutral, or negative world, which he's arguing we've entered a negative world in terms of the relationship between Christianity and the culture in America. James, James Wood did was he, he sought to chart a path of providing criticism to Keller that was fair, but wasn't just the Keller's a Marxist sort of variety of criticism that some people um, lobby. 
But here's the thing. You wouldn't know what the substance of their arguments actually were listening to that quote, uh, that clip from Sky, because all that clip was, was his emotive psychological projection of his um, opinion of their articles. And I guess his opinion is that somehow these articles are displaying a fear. And quite frankly, I'm not even sure what to call this. Is this straw manning? I mean, is he borderline just, you know, flatly misrepresenting their pieces? But I would encourage everyone to go read the articles. There's not an ounce of fear to be found in them. So it is, it's a pretty absurd reaction. And it honestly makes me wonder how closely he read them. Um, but even if he did read them, it's clear that he read them through this preconceived emotive filter um, where he's he's not actually listening to what they're saying, but really how he thinks this tells us how they feel. It's a very strange reaction, Justin. I, I think it's interesting. And and the fact that that David French, Russell Moore, you know, this group, uh, Tim Keller, you know, they are pictured as Jesus in this situation, I think is very odd. Um, does Jesus just lay on the back of the boat and just let the storm come and destroy the boat? He actually answers the situation with force. <laughs> yeah. um, I'm thankful that he wasn't passive in that situation, but he dealt with it. Um, so it's just a really bad illustration altogether, don't you think? Well, it is. Well, it's a bad illustration, but the funny thing is that, is that it actually works for us. I mean, I assume that myself and James and Aaron all believe Jesus is in the boat. But here's the problem. The problem is uh, we are arguing that the Jesus that's in the boat is a Jesus that has revealed a comprehensive and binding ethical and moral uh, code of discipleship. It's not just the Jesus of the red letters of the Bible, and it's not just the Jesus who makes me feel good inside. You know, it's, it's a Jesus who's, uh, who you know, affirms all of Scripture that binds us as his disciples to fight for certain things and to, to advocate for certain things that seems to make, you know, the skies of the world uncomfortable. I thought Rod Dreher had, you know, he mentioned Dreher too. Dreher had a yet another follow-up article um, to Sky's comments, which I thought were really good. And um, Dreher breaks down two different types of fear, you know, and some fears are good and some fears are bad. So fear in and of itself isn't bad. Um, and what he pinpoints, I think is exactly right. He says that people like uh, Sky are not selling courage, you know, hey, be confident in Jesus in the boat, but anesthesia, hey, you know, don't worry about these cultural problems. Jesus got it. Essentially, it's an ethical version of Jesus take the wheel when what we're heading towards is a, a crash with a transgender agenda and abortion up to nine months. And that's just not responsible. Yeah. If, say, someone were to take my son's oatmeal and pour a little bit of poison um, into that oatmeal. Uh, I, I certainly would not be, quote unquote, afraid of that oatmeal in the same way that I'd be, you know, afraid of, of you know, someone holding a gun to my head. Um, but I would take that oatmeal and I would just get it out of his presence as fast as I could because I love him and I want to protect him. That's and, right. And and that's that's the issue here is that Jesus eventually intercedes and protects his disciples. The disciples should have practiced faith because 
Jesus had already entered the culture war over and over and over again. Um, the culture of these religious Pharisees who understood much of the law but didn't understand the heart of it. Um, and so they should have recognized he was more than capable of protecting them in the boat because of the way that he had already answered their issues with conviction. And I believe, um, I believe this kind of this passivity that is being promoted towards what the transgender movement, the, the uh, you know, abortion, homosexuality within the church is, is looking at that poison poured into the oatmeal and just saying, see what happens. Yeah, that's right. I think that's a, that's a good analogy there, Justin. You know, I think also we should note that Sky's critique is essentially what we would call a form of vulvarism, which is saying, look, this guy's wrong. And let me tell you, you know, he's wrong, but I'm not actually going to engage the substance of his arguments at all, at all. So it's bulverism. But beyond that, again, it's just, you know, pure psychological projection of, of what he thinks that James and Aaron and folks like them, like us, are feeling. And this really isn't a, isn't a debate over what we're feeling. I, I'm, I'm not afraid. Um, I am concerned for the future of our country and for future generations, which is an appropriate concern to have. But I do believe that Jesus is in control. And the fact that I believe Jesus is in control is what, um, you know, gets me up in the morning and gives me the courage to go out there and to fight against those who I think are unhelpfully compromising. Amen. So because we are in this negative world, and I absolutely agree with that analysis that we are living in a different world than we were even living in 10 years ago, do you see a place for winsomeness and nuance in pastoral ministry or just in any Christian's interaction with the world and culture? Well, the answer to that is, of course. Of course, there's a place for um, being winsome and being nuanced. We want to make an appeal to people to, um, to be reconciled to God. You know, we are Christ's ambassadors, you know, saying be reconciled to God. And we do so in such a way as to not present, you know, unnecessary stumbling blocks um, for, for the Christian faith and the content of the message. But we can never remove the core truths and claims of the Christian method message mm -hmm. in a way to try to so, um, yeah, and of course, look, some things are nuanced. I mean, if you listen to the rest of that podcast, they absolutely butcher the concept of nuance pertaining to the law. But some things are nuanced, right? The, the tax code has any number of different nuances to it. But the question of whether or not abortion should be made illegal to a Christian should not be a nuanced question. And that's quite frankly where Keller was you know, really stepping in it recently when he had a long tweet thread applying nuance to abortion the way we would never apply such similar nuance to, say, white supremacy, slavery, child abuse. Um, so some things are nuanced and some things aren't. So maybe where these brothers and sisters are lacking nuance is the nuance to see which things should not be nuanced. <laughs> Amen. Amen. Yeah, I I saw a, a pastor tweet this recently, and forgive me for forgetting his name. I'll put it in the show notes if I can find it. But he said, nuance is good to fight heresy. It's not good to, to promote heresy. We use nuance as pastors, but we do it to, to, to bring about the truth, to, to tease out the truth um, where we see lies. Um, and so nuance is good. 
Um, nuance is good, but it has to be used correctly. It has to be used rightly. Um, I actually don't think pastors are called to be nice. You know, I think that's the difference between a godly nuance and an ungodly nuance. Uh, we don't want to be people who are, are just passively smiling all the time when our God is, is being defamed and his, his, his glory is being torn down by, by false ideas nice in those situations. I want to be kind. I want to enter into that and, and speak truth to it. Um, so there is, there's, I see a, a very huge difference between um, the Holy Spirit given fruit, kindness, and niceness. Um, why do you think, William, people gravitate to men like Phil Vischer, to David French, to Russell Moore? Well, yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I, I would hope that some folks are gravitating away from them, right? Some of these men had platforms for any number of different reasons. Uh, you know, Phil Vischer is famous for, you know, children's cartoons, veggie tales. And so then he, you know, he parlays from that into essentially cultural commentary. I just got to say, I mean, I don't mean this to, to, to be rude to these brothers and sisters who do the Holy Post podcast but i listen to them as somebody with experience in our um in our government in the realm of public policy and in, in the realm of applying christian ethics and reasoning to tricky matters i just think they sound so out of their depth which which doesn't surprise me to a certain extent but you know Vischer had a platform for children's cartoons david frank cut his teeth as an ostensibly hardcore conservative commentator so in many ways french has um tacked with the wind um, and has now found himself on the more Atlantic side of things, the Atlantic Journal, um, where his now audience is being built as he, as he regularly, um, I would say, uh, critiques or you could say attacks uh, white evangelical Christians to the applause of his newer audience. Uh, and then, you know, obviously, Russell Moore, he was um, in, in the SBC chair of the commission. All that to say that the, the deeper issue is I think that there's just a lot of um, poorly taught and poorly discipled Christians out there who gravitate towards individuals who say things that sound nice. Um, and like you said, niceness is not a fruit of the spirit. Kindness is. But they they present a Christianity that's very pietistic and it's very moralistic. And it can make you feel good about yourself as if you could be above the fray of the dirty mm -hmm. politics and still faithfully follow Jesus Christ. And I just don't think I would suggest that's not a faithful way of posturing or positioning ourselves um, in the real world. Yeah, I, I compare it to, you know, as, as a pastor, the, <laughs> the person standing in the back of the church watching as people are sweeping floors and picking up pieces of paper and vacuuming, um, standing back with their arms crossed saying, you're doing this wrong, you're doing this wrong, you're doing this wrong, um, while they're not doing anything at all. Yeah, or another way to put it would be, are you going to fault, um, are you going to fault the trash man for smelling like garbage when he comes home from work? Of course not. And I'm thankful for all of the brothers and sisters out there who work in the garbage industry, you know, that's not a slide on them. But in the same way, are you going to tell a Christian who wants to build a better world um, for those who live in it that they can't look like they're involved in politics? Of course not. Otherwise, right. we're just giving the public square over to the pagans. That's right. Yeah, it's it's really easy to criticize artistic when you have no skin in the game. 
Um, you wrote an article for standingforfreedom.com, which I highly suggest um, my listeners go and check out. It's called, We Need to Rethink the Relationship Between the Church and the State. Start by remembering that the church wins. So how does reorienting our understanding of Christ's certain victory over the world and Abraham Kuyper's work on sphere sovereignty change our understanding of the church and state? Yeah, thank you for bringing that up. Yes, I would encourage everybody to check out the Freedom Center, the Standing for Freedom Center. Uh, you, that's where I publish the vast majority of, of my articles. And here's what I think this helps us do, Justin. It helps us reorient our sort of our eschatological horizon or timeline. We lift our eyes up off the here and now. And we ask ourselves, okay, what's going to be left when Christ comes back and everything falls into judgment and you know, we're raised to eternal life or eternal damnation, what's left? And the church is left. And I was doing research for this paper that in seminary here on the relationship of the church and the state. And I came across this quote from Abraham Kuyper that just really jumped out and grabbed me. You know, this this article I wrote is not a comprehensive unpacking of the relationship of the church and state and all the nuances that um, you know develop in the here and now. But Piper's point was this, you know, and I'll just read a little bit of the quote. He says, it is therefore decidedly incorrect to honor the state as the palace in which the church is assigned no more than a side wing. And that point, I think, is very important because I think during COVID in particular, we saw a lot of people acting as if the church was no more than a side wing in the palace of the state. And it could direct us around as it pleased. And we really couldn't do anything about it. And I'm saying, well, actually, no. And here's what Kuiper says. He says, rather, the state is little more than scaffolding erected on the building site where the church is busy laying the foundation for the palace in which Christ will one day establish his royal throne. When the battle is over, the state will disappear forever. The dawn of the eternal existence of the nations will rise out of the church, not the state. And so, yeah, that reorients how we see everything, gives us a more positive view. <laughs> now, instead of being led around by being led around by our government. Right. It's actually the church that should absolutely take charge and in, in, in do what it's called to do and, and be, um, be that continual witness of what God's law is. You know, That's this right. is how sin is restrained in our world. It, it's part of the way. It, it's one of the ways is through the church, being the church and being different, and, and the church should have a huge effect on the government, not vice versa. I mean, I do think there's a there's a world in which the state, which is overseeing the well-being of all the people that live within it, could, could very strongly recommend to the church that they should not all gather together, say, as like a thousand people in one room because of some certain safety condition, and uh, the church should really take that under advisement and potentially agree with that. Um, ruling. I just don't think that that was the case during the COVID-19 pandemic. And so what I want to help us do is recover this sort of muscular understanding that the government more has an authority of what I would say counsel on. I'm borrowing this from Dr. Lehman, an authority of counsel, not authority of command when it comes mm -hmm. to the things of the church and the things of God and the faith. Yeah, uh, I I agree. And, and they need to have, <laughs> we didn't see this in Illinois, they need to have a, a posture of of respect towards the church. They need to show that. And, That's right. and, and unfortunately, 
you know, particularly with Governor Prisker here, you could tell right off the bat he did not care about churches at all, which in turn caused us as a church to recognize very quickly that we should not take much of their advisement and counsel, um, that very often we should do the very opposite. Um, and so there was a there was just a, a lack of trust between us as the church and, and the oversight of the government. And so I think, you know, as, as the church continues to, to grow and, and be a light and a testimony, um, I pray we should pray for our leaders as, as we're called to do, that God would transform their hearts and there would be a readjustment of priorities. I appreciate that, William. Thank you. Um, what are some future projects that we should be looking out for, brother? Oh, sure. Yeah. I'm, I mean, I'm constantly writing. Um, just did a little piece on how the Reformation has reshaped our understanding as Protestants of um, the church, of the role of the pastor, and of the role of sacraments and baptism. So that's just a little historical piece. Um, I uh, had, had a big piece recently on issues with the the transgender epidemic, which I called the transdemic in America. So I'll just continue to be publishing what I hope is um, helpful, biblically based commentary on issues of theology, culture, politics, um, and current events in the United States. Um, I'm trying to think of anything uh, bigger than that. I'm working on a, on a I'm finishing up a paper. I've been granted quite a bit of uh, grace in an extension period um, for one of my classes on how transgenderism is really an act contrary to nature. It's an attempt to annihilate ourselves as opposed to allow ourselves to be transformed. Um, so, yeah, everything along those lines, Justin, joining you as often as you'll have me, joining any other <laughs> podcast where I can chime in. So, uh, yeah, and continue to try to be a faithful church member, husband, father, and work where God has me. Yeah, we'll, we'll continue to pray for you, brother. Your voice is so important. Um, so we'll pray for, man, your marriage, your your, your family. Um, just your own godliness and holiness and, and your place in the church. And and then we'll pray for your friend to actually just say, you know what, let's, let's do this podcast. Let's make it happen. All right. Sounds good. All right, William. Thanks for joining me. William Wolf, uh, William underscore E underscore Wolf on Twitter. Um, you can find him all over the place um, if you search his name. Thank you, brother. We'll talk again. Yeah. Thank you, Justin. Thanks so much.